Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by our good friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, we will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We have no outside guest expert today. You just get to hear the three of us talk. Yeah, Tom, you're a bit on the hot seat today because we're talking about the passion and death of Jesus Christ, especially as covered by a book you wrote last year. Tom, the first thing that comes to mind for me is why in the world did you write a book? Because I thought God told me to. I told people for years I was not going to write a book because I'd give talks on the crucifixion. Ever since uh, 1986, I've been doing that. And they said, oh, you should write a book. I said, no, only if God wants me to. And the, the way I knew it would be God wanting me to is if a publishing company actually asked me to write a book. Well, step back a little bit for our listeners. They might be wondering, he's a dermatologist. Why has he been giving talks on the crucifixion for years and years? What's the backstory there? Uh, the backstory is a first year in medical school. I was teaching sixth grade religious education because I didn't have enough to do at night. So during Lent in my first year of med school, I wanted to teach my students something about the crucifixion. And I asked one of my professors, who was a pathologist and known to be a Christian, if he had any information on it. And... Uh, I, so I went up to him and he said, yeah, I'll have something for you tomorrow after class. And after class the next day, did you remember me, Dr. Edwards? Oh, yes. So he gives me this article on the physical death of Jesus Christ. Hey, he nailed the topic. I looked at the date. The date was for the following week. This is before there were preprint servers or even servers of any kind. And then I looked. He was the author. It was an article to be published the following week in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's still on the Internet. It's gained lots of uh, views. And that was just a coincidence, right? <laughs> and, and then I ended up doing my third year research project in med school for a semester with him. It wasn't on that topic, but he gave me access to all of his back information. So God has kind of been preparing you for quite a while to get ready to write this book. But my question is, what made you think you could do it? Because to me, it sounds like a Homeric task. And he, <laughs> even Homer took the shortcut and just used verbal tradition. That's right. So you know, when I hear you say that, I had a chance to hear uh, a popular author that writes legal thrillers once. And he was describing the difference between him and the rest of us was he just actually wrote down the stuff that he was thinking. And I thought, can't be that easy or everybody would be a published author. So I echo Andrew's questions. What in the world made you think you could do it? And how did you know how to do it? That is an excellent question. You know, I, I've heard people say about authors like Stephen King that, you know, he takes, you know, two to four hours every morning and just writes. And they say, uh, is he, does he get to do that because he's Stephen King or is he Stephen King because he does that? <laughs> and I think he's Stephen King because he does it. It's establishing a routine. And I think for years I've been writing medical articles. Uh, and then back in 2014, 15, I was asked by my friend Matthew Bunsen to write a course for Catholic Distance University on the subject. So I put in 500 hours to that task and only had like a few dozen people actually take the course, which was disheartening. So I, I had done that work. But the fact of putting together articles, writing book chapters, um, it, it made it easy to know that it's parts and, you know, it's the answer to the old question, how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. Well, you write a book, one, one word or one paragraph at a time. And so having read, you know, written shorter sections, just putting a bunch of them together didn't seem daunting. Well, so if, if you had to say that the greatest takeaway as, a, as an author that you had from that process to listeners, you know, what surprised you the most about the whole endeavor? Uh, it, it was it, it's more methodical mm. than enlightening. You know, the enlightening moments come in the shower when I'm out running <laughs> and, th and then I just have to run and, and jot it down and make sure I don't forget it. But it's just plodding away. I mean, I think that's where most greatness is. You've got to devote the time to just the plotting times, okay, I'm going to spend an hour here, take 10 minutes off, spend another hour. And if I could get up to four hours of writing done in a, a day that I had off from work, to me, that was a horribly productive day. Now, some of our listeners and maybe even some people in this room are thinking, oh, no, McGovern, he wrote a book, so I could write one too. Yes, can't, you could. <laughs> yes, you could. Can't be that hard. How would you advise listeners uh, who might be saying that I could write a book? What would well, you tell them? Well, the, the thing is, what is your idea worth sharing? What idea, what inspiration do you have 
that other people find inspiring. Now, if you've talked to other people, you've given presentations, and you know you have that idea, then take that and then map map it out. But you want to bounce it off somebody, and I think somebody who's a professional in the area, because friends, family, they're going to probably give you, you know, maybe more optimism or less, depending on your family, uh, <laughs> than you deserve. Really, you want a, a third party who's objective with it. Well, I think if I were to write a book, I might be limited to like a joke book. <laughs> but you you opted for the passion and death of Jesus Christ. So what what reason should listeners consider reading this book? Why should they they read it? Because it will change their life. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, uh, you know, like the old saw goes, to know him is to love him. Well, that's true about Jesus Christ. That was a song about some singer's father. But it's true about Christ. The more we know him, the more we will love him. And it takes up what, up to a third of any of the Gospels is spent on the Passion. It must be really important mm. to us. Uh, and secondly, this book does two things that other books don't do. Number one, it looks at what has been uncritically accepted as really happening in crucifixion and just using a, a incredibly deep evidence in history, archaeology, reenactment studies, artwork, graffiti, inscriptions, and really... Uh, takes on the myths and corrects them. But secondly, it integrates what happened to Jesus with our own suffering so we can suffer better and more effectively. Well, and, you know, I'm going to go a step further and say for people who are interested in this, you can actually count this book as part of your tithe because all the proceeds go to the CMA, the student section, right, Tom? My proceeds, known as royalties, which are a little over a dollar a book. But yes, uh, for that, they all go to the Catholic Medical Association for our outreach to pre-medical students and medical students who are having a really difficult time making it through secular medical training with their Catholic faith intact in the exam room and in the hospital. So that just means listeners should buy multiple copies uh, and give them out because it's only about a dollar a book. So buy lots and lots of. You're books. singing my song. You know we could we could quote uh, people all day long that have said great things uh, about the book. It's you know from from Bishop Robert Barron to Archbishop Alexander Sample to uh, e even um, Al Cresta, one of my favorite shows on EWTN. Lots of people have said lots of great things about the book. But uh, I mean, I think Andrew and I both can be your greatest fans and supporters. When I think of it in my personal impressions, I think I've had two sort of crucifixion moments mm. in my formation. One was the first time I watched Mel Gibson's movie. Oh, sure. And the yeah. second was when I read your book. Um, wow. And there were similar kind of feelings in that so often I think in our teaching, you know, through our upbringing, you know, it's Jesus died on a cross and you move right. on to the next part of the story sure but that is the story in so many ways yes and without understanding the intensity and the brutality and all of the back back information it just doesn't have uh the same meaning well and even i i think a, a criticism of catholics sometimes with rote prayers that we repeat like in the rosary and the mysteries of the rosary it's easy to glance over these cosmic realities that are so huge your book does a great job of bringing the details to light so that you can experience and reflect on it more and it really makes it so much more i don't know i guess i would say you realize how important and how big of a deal it was rather than something you just say in passing it gives you a chance to reflect and meditate on the actual sufferings of christ yeah well said it's just it's so uh, the word intense is so inferior, but yet that's the one that just keeps coming up. That That is so intense. And to think that not only did it happen, but then the some of the apostles were there to witness it um, and to go on and talk about it and yes, teach about it. Indeed. Um, and it, it is the basis for much of our faith to understand why Christ would have allowed that to happen to himself and what's in the answer. What's the meaning behind the answer? Uh, to that why. It's just remarkable. So we're going to get to some of the details surrounding Tom's research, but before we do, as we wrap up this first quarter, we want to get to a trivia question, Tom. You've got one for us, right? Category, sweating. So I get to bring together my specialty in dermatology with Christ's passion. So St. Luke reported the observation, and he didn't see it, probably Peter, James, or John did, who were closest, that there was sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground while Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. So, how much sweat does the average adult produce in a normal day from their two and a half to three 
million sweat glands. How much per day? And bonus, how much sweat can a person produce before the body stops production in the absence of more intake of fluids? Hmm. The answer to these two questions will be at the end of the show, but we'll be back with more here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Actually, it should be three doctors because uh, all of us are together today talking about a terrific book that if you haven't read, uh, you should have and you maybe should read it again and buy it for someone else. We're with Dr. Tom McGovern and we're talking about uh, his book. So let's start off simply, Tom, why should listeners care about this topic in general? We know Christ died for our sins. He was crucified on a cross. Why do we need to know more about it? What Christ suffered because we all suffered, we are made in the image and likeness of Christ, and so since he suffered, we will suffer too. It's part of life. So we might as well learn how to suffer well. Uh, for many people, it seems like the most meaningless part of life. It's also the part where every single human being, whatever they believe about God or don't believe, they have in common. Everybody wants an answer to this question of what is the meaning of suffering? How can I make sense out of my suffering? And we can actually evangelize others based on our common experience of suffering. And so, Tom, you were filling us in a little bit in the first quarter about knowing this professor when you were in, in Mayo Medical School, mm -hmm. and he was doing some work into the passion. What other studies have been done into the passion? Oh, there have been a number of, of reenactment studies, uh, probably going back almost 100 years, when you really start to get doctors writing about it. Of, of course, uh, the first big one is actually, I don't know, maybe it's Chris's great-great-grandfather. There was uh, Dr. William Stroud, ah. who in the 1850s, and I actually found the original literature recently for a paper that I'm, I just submitted, uh, who thought that Christ died of a ruptured heart. This was like in the 1850s. Uh, and then you have a, a Dr. Uh, Lebec in the 1920s in France, and then publishing in English in 1925. Five, uh, doing some work, and then a Dr. Hynek in the Czech Republic, H-Y-N-E-K, and Dr. Pierre Barbet in the 1940s and 50s doing research, a surgeon in France, and then some uh, better work in the 1980s, uh, Dr. David Ball in, uh, I think, Mississippi, and then you have uh, Dr. Frederick Zugaby. He did cardiovascular research. He was also a, uh, a coroner. A pathologist who are uh, doing research in the in the 90s and publishing in the early 2000s so there, there's a number of reenactment studies uh studies with cadavers uh that have been done and were these all clarifying that they would build on each other and agree with the previous or that were they uh very varied in their outcome <sighs> the the two dr ball and dr zugaby who did studies with um with uh, medical students on makeshift crosses were fairly consistent. The other ones were a, a whole mishmash of things done. In fact, there was even studies done in, in Germany of hanging people by their wrists uh, with their feet not touching the ground, thinking that this may have had something to do with crucifixion. You know, spoiler alert, it doesn't. Man, those medical students, I hope they pass that class, whatever it was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anything we need, we can get medical students to do. That's what the authors were thinking. Uh, yes. I'm sure. Let's move on uh, to Christ in the Garden, because you talk in the book uh, about really sort of the paradigm of how Christ approached this terrible agony uh, on the night before his torturous uh uh, death. And let's talk a little bit about that, about fear, sure. about anxiety, uh, and what that means. Well, I mean, this goes back to one of our favorite guests on the show, Dr. Kevin Majors, you know, teaching us how to handle challenge or fear or anxiety in our life in his three-step paradigm of, you know, um, reframing, uh, then silent awareness, in the present moment, and then taking on the challenge. And that's what we see Jesus doing in the garden. He, in his human nature, is afraid. He's anxious. Yeah, I mean, people are going to do horrible things to his body. It's it's natural. But what he did is he initially prayed, Father, if it possible, take this cup from me. But in the very next breath, he reframes that as, but not my will, but yours be done, Father. So that's the big reframe. You know, that's the, the thought to, you know, bring it on. That's what we're supposed to do when we face a challenge is to reframe. And then what does he do? His silent awareness, that's his praying on the rock of agony. And he was, he let himself feel that fear so intensely that what? It bled out of him. And then after that, when he's arrested, he's embracing the challenge 
of his own passion. And it's like he is above the situation. He has entered into that state we know as flow, which he was probably in most of his life because he's taking his human nature and doing everything you could possibly do with the human nature, being at his best, operating in every task from his highest ideals. So almost a lesson for life, isn't it? Acknowledge the challenge, accept the challenge, and then contemplate uh, and, and reform the challenge into an opportunity. A absolutely. So, I, I mean, and that's changed my life. Uh, it has. But, you know, you know, there's a question. Did Jesus sweat blood? You know, you've got people and I wrote my book like a detective story. At the beginning of every chapter, I write what other writers have written. And then my question to the reader is, is this true or not? Then I present the evidence for you to figure out was that correct or not? And then at the end, I summarize what is known to shed light on what these other authors have done. That's very good. And so tell us about the, the sweating blood. You know, everybody's familiar with the idea of it. Tell us what we know about it. Right. So this is in my field of dermatology. Every day I'm looking at dozens or a few hundred slides of, of skin under the microscope. And Dr. Barbet said, oh, in states of ex extreme emotional trauma, uh, people will have their sweat glands or blood vessels rupture into their sweat glands and bleed on the skin. And looking at the skin every day, it's like there's a lot of layers of cells in between the blood vessels and the sweat glands. I just don't see this happening. <laughs> and so since 2003, there have been about 30 to 40 people at least published that have been witnessed having this bloody sweat exude from their skin in front of people and even to be biopsied immediately after. And these biopsies immediately after only show swelling with no blood in the skin. But they finally did a biopsy on somebody while they were exuding this, and it happened to be a 13-year-old girl of Thailand from her scalp. And what the biopsy showed is that, strangely, uh, the space opens up in the middle layer of skin, the dermis, which is full of a protein called collagen, which makes up something you might wear called leather. Well, not human leather, but cow leather, cow collagen. And so there's just this space. There's there's blood cells in there, red and white blood cells. And as they cut through this biopsy specimen, eventually there's just this little slit that opens up in the skin, releases this fluid, and closes up again. It's, we don't know how it happens, but it's not from the blood mixing with the sweat in the sweat glands. It's from the blood mixing with the sweat on the skin. Is it related to stress? Was that little girl stressed out? That's, I don't know if this particular one, it's a 50-50 proposition. Another thing Dr. Barbet said is everybody who experiences bloody sweat is under horrible emotional anxiety. Untrue. In 50% of them, the first sign that something's happening is they feel something dripping and they go, oh, there's red stuff, blood dripping off of me. The hmm. other half might have extreme headache, extreme abdominal pain. Uh, but what you never see in the skin is any sign of trauma. You can never see any opening uh, where it came out of. And what's really interesting is this can happen from parts of the body where there are no sweat glands. So this bloody material can come out of your tear ducts. It can come out of from underneath the fingernails. It can come out of the tongue. Wow. wow. Well, let's move along the timeline uh, in the crucifixion. Um, Jesus leaves the garden after this episode, and then he's going now to go suffer at the hands of Caiaphas' soldiers. What happened to Jesus right after he was uh, arrested in the garden? Well, it talks about him being uh, met with blows by the guards. And the, the Greek words mean either open-handed slap or could be a punch. Uh, but there is this tradition. There's actually the location now in Jerusalem where you can go. It's called St. Peter and Galicantu, which means cock crow where the cock crowed when Peter denied Jesus. And there's this dungeon. And you have to be lowered into this the dungeon through a hole. And there's actually um, a mosaic of Jesus with this uh, rope truss that would have lowered him down in there. And there's some indication from Luke, who uses a word related to uh, dermis or skin, that he was struck with something like uh, a small branch that might have been up to a half an inch wide. Uh, they were called virga or virgae, V-I-R-G-A-E. Uh, and there are actually marks on the Shroud of Turin that fit this along with the scourge mark. So he might have been, you know, whipped with a switch. Uh, during that night, he's kept awake all night, doesn't eat, uh, doesn't drink, uh, and he's tortured. Wow. And this all happens before the official scourging at the pillar. That's correct. This is not a true scourging. So it's at least 12 or more hours probably from the garden until the next morning um, of 
at least part of it being beaten severely, yes. maybe all of it as far as we know. So what effect would that have had on Christ's suffering? Well, you know, being punched, you know, you start to get swelling and bruises and there are, you know, there's inflammation, releases chemicals that makes you even more sensitive to the next time you're touched. So instead of taking, you know, a slap or a, a fist punch to hurt, a much lighter uh, engagement or much lighter trauma will cause even more pain. So you are like pre-sensitized for everything to hurt more. Plus you're incredibly tired. You've lost fluid volume. You've lost some fluid from the, you know, the sweating and the blood, uh, but you're just gonna be tired, lightheaded and tender. So now he's dehydrated without calories right. uh, and has been beaten to some degree through the night. Then he goes and is sentenced to the scourging, right? Yes. Um, tell us about that. So if we look at the Gospels, I think there's at least two, including uh, Luke, where it says that Pilate initially meant the scourging to be Jesus' entire punishment. Uh -huh. So it's likely that this scourging was more severe than the average pre-crucifixion scourging. And interestingly, looking back into the ancient history of crucifixion, many crucifixion victims were scourged while they were carrying the cross. We know mm. that's not the case with Jesus. So. Uh, in Dr. Edwards' article, it shows a scourge drawing with a wooden handle, leather straps, and fixed to the pieces of leather, sharp bone, and uh, lead balls. This was never used by Romans. Only the Greeks had little pieces of bone on their scourges. The Romans had the lead balls at the end, however, and some scourges have been found in the catacombs, presumably something that some of the martyrs were scourged with. And these were all metal, metal handles, metal chains, lead at the end. And usually the lead are in little pairs of pear-shaped uh, ends. Now, it's not exactly understood where the scourging actually occurred. Isn't, isn't that correct? Well, it says in the gospel, it is actually pretty clear. It's just that people have tried to read into it what they wanted to. Mm. Many people thought, oh, it was the fortress of Antonia on the corner of the uh, temple. Well, in reality, in Mark's gospel, I think in chapter 15, it says, then they went to the praetorium, that is the palace. The only palace in Jerusalem was Herod's palace. And we know that the Roman procurators, the governors like Pilate, would spend his time there. Usually he was on the seacoast in Caesarea Maritima, but when they came to town, he was there at that palace. So we do know the location, it just is not the location in Jerusalem where you can start the way of the cross today. Tom, as we're going through these questions, I'm kind of overwhelmed by the quality and quantity of your knowledge on this. How, how many times have you been to the Holy Land or how, how did you learn all this stuff? Uh, I like to, to read, but I also had this experience after giving talks for 15 to 20 years, I started reading the work of Frederick Zugaby and others thinking, what I've been teaching is wrong. And when you've been saying something publicly for so long and you're wrong, it takes a long period of introspection before you want to turn that around and say, wow, I was wrong. Now I have to look at what does other evidence say? So it forced me to read in depth everything I could and to realize I have no dog in this fight except the truth as best understood from the evidence. And so it's voluminous reading is the way I got there. Wow. So we move along the timeline. So he was in the garden, then he was beaten overnight. Now he's been scourged uh, mercilessly. Um, now there's more time. And so this is when he's taken and tortured further uh, before he's actually crucified. Walk us through that a bit. So, well, um, I didn't get through what happened with the scourging. Uh, and then I think what you're referring to is, yeah, the, the royal mocking. So with the scourging, there would have been, and we don't know what position he was scourged in. We can find no evidence that says what position someone was tied to. We always picture like his hands are above his head and he's tied to some big pillar. Uh, what we do know is that if the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Christ, there are no marks on the upper extremities. There would have been... Um, somebody, a lictor, on either side of him wielding the scourging implement against his back, his buttocks, his lower thighs. And on the Shroud of Turin, there are these paired marks. Like I said, the scourges found have little pairs of these pear-shaped uh, pieces of lead. And there's over 150 marks on the chest and over 200 marks on the back 
of the image on the shroud. Now, that is an underestimate. Why do I say that? These are marks where there is blood. Certainly, initially, when those lead pieces are hitting um, the individual, they're not going to be drawing blood. Wow. But, but after a while, it will tenderize the skin so that they'll, they'll force to be you know, bruises, then deeper contusions. Then you'll have openings of the skin with uh, lacerations and fluid and blood coming out. It would also cause a great deal of pain uh, in the chest. Uh, our, our bones have nerves in the periosteum, the layer right on the surface of the bone. So that's going to start to get swelling. And when you get swelling in that really thin layer on top of the bone, that's what it experiences as pain. You also will start having trouble breathing because as you expand your chest and the bones of the ribs move, that's incredibly painful. So you're going to want to like what they call splinting, holding your arms against your chest so your chest doesn't open up too much when you breathe. Otherwise, that causes a lot of pain. Also, internally, you're going to start to lose fluid out of the blood vessels because some of it's going to go between the lungs and the chest wall into what's called the pleural space. So now he's bleeding, severely dehydrated, yes. uh, and immense pain. Yes. Uh, hasn't eaten for two days now. Uh, and At then, least since the Last Supper. Yeah. And then now we proceed to what you're calling the, the royal mocking. Right. So Pilate's guards uh, decide to have some fun with him. And so it talks about uh, the mocking. The mocking took on uh, four different aspects. He was given a royal crown, a royal robe, a royal scepter, and then he received royal homage. So, you know, starting with the crown, I've been to Jerusalem, the Holy Land three times now. And on my first trip there, I asked Tony, our guide, Tony, Tony, we're driving through Galilee. Okay. Is there any plant here that is thought to be the one from which the crown of thorns was made. He said, oh, yes, Tom, come here. We stopped the van. He gets out. He says, you know, this bush here, this is it. And the botanical name is actually Zisiphus spina Christi, the spines of Christ. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. And so we go out and get a piece because I'm trying to figure out how am I going to get one home? <laughs> Not the whole plant, just a little piece of it, a dead piece of it. So uh, this plant, this bush, does have spines that are about half an inch long, incredibly sharp. We cut ourselves trying to get a piece uh, of it off. Uh, and, you know, people always picture a crown as this little round circlet thing. Well, if you're a Roman soldier and you're just trying to inflict pain, you're not going to cause pain on your own hands by trying to perfectly fashion something. No. What you're going to do is you're going to make a cap. And actually, that's the word in Greek in the Gospels. It sounds like a cap of thorn covering the head, which also fits evidence on the Shroud of Turin. So they just bunched this together and mashed it down on top of his head. The scalp is usually under some tension. Once you pierce it, the skin pulls apart, does not tend to close up like skin on other parts of the body. So it's going to bleed more freely than other parts of the body. And that periosteum on the scalp, incredibly sensitive to those sharp ends of the thorns. The scalp bleeds like the dickens. It, it does. I operate on scalps almost every day and it bleeds because the structure of the scalp is almost like a, a, a waffle. You've got these isolated sections separated from each other and you don't have valves in the veins there like other parts of the body. So once you get even bleeding from veins, it's pretty free. You know, Tom, I'm wondering if this might be a good place to take a break before we get into the details you know about the cross. We will be back here on Dr. Doctor with Tom McGovern after the break. And we are back with Dr. Doctor talking to our very own Dr. Tom McGovern about the passion and death of Christ. Tom, tell us what we've gotten wrong for so long about Christ's cross. Well, I think we were still on the royal mocking. We uh, didn't finish with the uh, the staff. I'm moving you along too quick. Yeah, I know, there's so I'm much I'm just excited here. about that. I'm always impressed when your research kind of discovers things where, man, I've envisioned this totally wrong for so long, but I don't want to move too fast. Well, you know, the, the royal reed, they talk about a reed. I always pictured something like a cattail that grew along Lake Michigan near where I grew up. No, the reed that grows up to 30 feet tall in the Middle East is like bamboo. So imagine getting hit by a pool cue stick, a piece of bamboo. That's the royal reed that they would use. And then the royal cloak. There was something that the um, officers in the retinue would have been wearing around the palace where uh, Herod was, uh, well, Herod's palace where Pilate was. And so they would have had to take off Jesus' garment. Now remember, if on your knee you get a, you know, a big owie and you put some gauze on there, well, if that gauze dries through the blood and you rip it off, 
you rip it off. It hurts a lot. That's what they would have had to do with Jesus' own cloak from the scourging wounds, then put on this robe. And then they gave him homage. And how did they give him homage? They said they beat him about the head with the reed. Well, what's on his head? The crown of thorns. So they're beating this down into his scalp with this big piece like bamboo or a pool stick. That had to hurt. And they're putting on and then they will take off again that robe and put his own clothes on him. So that was the mocking. That was the way they presented Jesus to the crowd in which Pilate said, behold the man, thinking maybe they'll have mercy on him, but they didn't. Instead, he was condemned to crucifixion. Gotcha. And now the the part that I was always really impressed with, what, what I've always envisioned with the cross from, you know, the stations of the cross at church is the traditional perpendicular two beams attached and weighing some hundreds of pounds how could he possibly do this you said those depictions are not most accurate that's right you know we had on um uh john cook last year on our show he's the world's foremost expert in the history of crucifixion and in his book crucifixion in the mediterranean he takes everything that has ever been written about crucifixion you know from you know before the time of Christ, tell crucifixion was outlawed by Constantine in the fourth century. There is no story anywhere of anyone ever carrying a two-part cross. And in the Gospels, the Gospels don't tell us Jesus carried his cross in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only tell us that Simon carried the cross. It's only John who tells us that Jesus carried a cross. And the Greek word for cross is storos, a Greek word which could mean at that time either an upright or um two pieces. Uh, but when you put it together with all the other literary evidence of the time and with the Latin terms, and the Latin term is patibulum for the crossbar, um, it's clear that storos in Greek, patibulum in Latin, referred to one piece of wood carried across the back, could have been strapped to the back while they were carrying it so that they wouldn't drop it, and then was brought to an upright post already fixed in the ground for crucifixion. Gotcha. Yeah, but to your point, Andrew, that changes that picture we have in our minds often and that's so portrayed in Mel Gibson's film as well that he carried the entire cross, which would have been really too large, too heavy for a well-bodied person to right. carry, much less someone that's been beaten and dehydrated and lost a lot of blood. Well, and there's a whole thing in how much did that crossbar weigh? You know, Pierre Barbet said 75 to 125 pounds. They're picturing a railroad tie. Mm -hmm. Well, trees were not really common around there. They would have reused the pieces of wood. I said, how can we find out what is any evidence? And I could only think of one possible piece of evidence for the weight of it. And if somebody has other evidence, I want to know. So what did I pick? Having been in Rome a number of times, I have been in the church of Santa Croce in Jerusalem in Rome. You're nodding your head. You've been there, Andrew? Uh, I've not been overseas that much, but I've been to Rome. Yes. And in that church, St. Helena brought back in the 320s, uh, some the relics of the crucifixion, including the crossbar of what was thought to be the crossbar of the good thief. So you can see a Staros in Rome. And how big is that Staros? It's about six feet long. It's about five by two and a half inches in rectangular cross section. It's made of European black pine. And based on the volume and the density of European black pine, it weighs about 15 pounds. Mm. Now you think, well, that's not very heavy. If you have been beaten, mm. if you have not slept, if you have not eaten or drank, and if it's hot, sunny, and you've got an unstable footing and you have something six feet along your back, you're going to be unstable. Yeah. You're going to fall. And tell us about the actual way of the cross. There are some misconceptions surrounding that as well, right, Don? Well, right now they have it starting, if you go to Jerusalem today, at this little military barracks or where they would have been next to the the old uh, temple, uh, but actually it would have started at on the west side, not the south side of um, Jerusalem, but the distance is about the same. It's about once around a high school track, about 400 meters. Okay. So I've, I don't know, I guess I always envisioned the way of the cross being this, you know, very long and arduous thing. It was arduous, but it wasn't all that long. Right. But just imagine, you know, I think of some of my older patients who have to walk maybe 75 feet to get to the room where I'm going to do surgery. And it's a little step at a time and yeah. they can't walk very well. Well, I'm imagining if you've got something heavy like that, you've got crowds around watching you, uh, it, and you're stumbling and you're falling. I mean, you fall three times, and then you got to get someone else to carry it. You're barely making it. 
it could take a while. Yeah. And now, Tom, I've never been to the Holy Land. I'd love to go sometime. But give us an idea of as you're going down this way, the cross, and you get to Calvary, what is Calvary? Why was he crucified there? Uh Calvary was just on the outside of the uh, city walls. So the city walls were right behind you at the time. And actually within 10 years of Jesus, that the city walls were enlarged to encompass this area. Uh, everything built in Jerusalem, even today, most things built in there are built of white limestone. So uh, Calvary was the leftovers of a quarry. And, and this is so beautiful. They took all the good stone they could get out of it. But once you cut into stone, it just starts to fracture in pieces and you can't get good blocks out of it. You stop. So this is the reality that the stones the builders rejected have become the cornerstones. These were literally rejected stones by builders because they were cracking. They just left those behind. So Calvary was the leftover bad quality stone of this quarry where they would crucify Jesus. And oftentimes after quarries were done, they would then let things grow in them and they would become gardens. Hmm. You, you could almost imagine really a trash heap of sorts, you know, in the yeah, current day. Yeah, you almost could. Outside of town where all the trash is left and you know, unneeded building materials, just more of the insult. I like that, yes. Yeah, more of yes. the insult. Now, some authors say that Jesus was given uh, a drink to reduce his suffering, you know, maybe wine, maybe mixed with mirth. What does your research say about that? So it says in the Gospels he was given wine mixed with myrrh. Now, a, a drops of myrrh were put in the wine as a preservative. But if it said wine mixed with myrrh, there must have been extra myrrh. Well, if you taste wine mixed with myrrh, it tastes like gasoline. So if somebody drank this, it was going to make their insane thirst even worse. Uh -huh. It was part of the punishment. And myrrh, contrary to popular opinion, does not do anything meaningful to reduce pain. Why would a torturer want to reduce your pain? It never made sense to me. Finally, yeah. somebody pointed that out to me. Man, and you know, in his work on the death of the Messiah, Father Raymond Brown eloquently wrote about Jesus's crucifixion. Never has so crucial a moment ever been phrased so briefly and uninformatively. How can we know what actually happened since the Gospels don't tell us that much about the actual crucifixion? You know, we have to put together pieces that we get from a fair amount of literature about crucifixion written between the 3rd century BC and the, the 3rd or 4th century AD, most of it within 100 years or so of Christ. And there are actually some images that have been found. There are two graffiti of crucified individuals, not uh, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, found around 100 years after Christ and about 200 years after Christ while crucifixion was still going on. And what you see in those is that it is the wrist that is closest to the crossbar um, on the upright. Uh, there's also a gemstone from the third, second or third century. Same thing, this one depicting Christ. Again, the, the wrist is uh, the closest there. Then you've got uh, also, if the Shard of Torah is Christ's burial cloth, you've got the wound in the, the left wrist of where something went through, uh, probably a spike. Uh, so with that evidence, uh, that definitely helps to know that it was almost certainly the wrist that was affixed tightly. Now, it's, it's an interesting question. You could, if most of the weight is on the feet, you could be secured on the cross just with a, a nail through the palm. Uh, if all the weight were on the palm, there's even a picture of a cadaver hanging from one nail through one palm on a cross and not falling through. But there's no bony structure there. And the Romans would have wanted to do things um, well. And um, once, and not have to repeat it. And Dr. Pierre Barbet did studies with cadaver arms right after being um, amputated 12 times, drove a spike through the wrist, always found its way between the same four bones, never broke a bone, and it went through easily like going through a funnel, he said. So we think just if you aim anywhere in the middle of the wrist, it's going to go through that area and hold somebody firmly. And, you know, to, to be kind of frank, I guess these guys, their job probably was execution. Correct. So you, you had shared a story with me one time, Tom, about your time in the Army just trying, okay, this is whatever task I have to do. Um, you're going to do it the most efficient and straightforward way. Yeah, a soldier is never going to do anything a more complicated way than necessary to get it done. I think that's been the same for soldiers since there have been soldiers. So, Tom, that's attachment of Christ's wrist to the horizontal cross. Let's talk about attachment of his feet to the vertical part of the cross. Right. We don't know. 
I mean, we can assume we know nails were used because of Thomas's comment uh, reported in John's gospel, putting his finger or seeing the nail prints in his hands. So it's it's uh, makes sense to think the same were used, although there is evidence that ropes in some crucifixions were used. Uh, we cannot uh, deny that. Now, there's often... If you look at crucifixes you've seen, we get our idea of how Christ was crucified because we've seen so many crucifixes. You can see the feet side by side in front of the cross. You can see one on top of another. And you can see sometimes this little uh, foot block on which the, the feet are. First of all, there's zero evidence that a foot block was ever used in any crucifixion. So mm -hmm. we can rule that out. Uh, and then secondly, uh, we see no images of crucifixions in which one foot is on the top of another. In all the images, the feet are side by side. Sometimes the feet are turned out to the side and the knees are turned out to the side. Um, in other ones, the, the feet are just next to the outside of the cross. With the spike going through the heel, essentially, correct? Right, but we don't see that specifically in an image. The feet are never really detailed done except in one, and this is called the Al Camilla Graffito because the woman who was crucified was named Al Camilla. And her feet are turned out like there would be a nail through the inside of the heel bone to the outside. And then that is mm. against the cross with the feet turned 90 degrees. It's really bizarre. So wow. th this is what's fascinating. There are now three archaeologic discoveries, we believe, of people who have been crucified based on what we've seen in their heel bones. So 1968. Man in his 20s, Yehohanan, the name is on the ossuary, the bone box, nail going outside to inside, left heel bone in the thickest part of the bone, right underneath where the leg bone would be. Then only a few months ago, December 2021, same exact finding, nail, same exact place in the heel bone in Great Britain, in the mm. town of Fenstanton, probably from around the year 200. Um, with Yehohanan, the first one, his other heel bone wasn't there. In Fenstant, the other heel bone wasn't, didn't have a nail through it. So the guess is, wow, maybe only one nail used and then tied on the other side. Then finally, 2018, Po Valley, Northern Italy, another skeleton found exact same place with a hole, but no nail. They probably reused it, unlike these other two. But the wider hole is on the inside and not on the outside, which would fit that one graffito showing the feet turned out and each heel nailed to the front of the cross bent. Wow. wow. Now, Tom, everybody knows um, that Christ died from suffocation. Now, that's just commonly understood. Tongue well applied to cheek. Not, <laughs> not so well known. Uh, but, but tell us what's going on there, because you've recently written something with some of our previous guests on this show Amen. Uh, that has to do with how he did or did not actually die. You know, when I was home for Christmas break, uh, taking some time off, uh, my friend, you know, John Cook that I just mentioned, sent me these articles. And there are more articles saying it is accepted without reservation that crucifixion victims died of asphyxiation. And I finally had enough. The evidence does not show that. The evidence comes from this torture done during World War One and then World War Two called Aufbinden, which is German for untie, which is what the victim would have yelled, where they take the hands, tie them behind the back, and then take the, those wrists and then string them up to the ceiling so that the feet aren't touching the ground and all your weight is on your contorted, you know, shoulders and wrists. And these victims were reported to die within an hour because their muscles would gradually go into spasm and contract vigorously from head down to the point where they couldn't relax and contract. But for a while, they tried to pull themselves up to breathe out and then, you know, let themselves down to breathe in. And somebody, this Dr. Lebec, and then Dr. Barbet and Dr. Heineck said, ah, that's how people died with crucifixion. Man, but you, you would say that that's not the case. Well, that doesn't make sense because... Aufbinden is not crucifixion. In Aufbinden, your arms are behind you and way above your head, and no weight is on your feet. In crucifixion, the majority, the vast majority of the weight is on the feet, and the arms in all of the images made during the time of crucifixion were out horizontally. They were not. And so if you're tied, stretched out horizontally, yeah, the body is going to sag a few inches, but it's not going to be upright, and it's not going to be with all the weight on the wrists. Well, if he didn't die from suffocation, then how did he die? Oh, 
Most likely, and this will be another article, because right now we just submitted an article a few days ago from when this was uh, recorded uh, with co-authors uh, Eustace Fernandez from the world of pulmonology and Dave Kaminskis' world of cardiology. We want to do one on how he died. Right now, I'd say Dr. Edwards' article, my mentor, you know, shock, the body lost fluid so that it wasn't enough blood left to really keep up with the demands of the body. And after a while, this can lead to a number of changes, which will then lead to a final irregular heartbeat. And that irregular heartbeat, Dave Kaminskis told me, can be noted by somebody to know, oh, something major just changed. My time might be up. And that would be a natural way that Jesus would have known ah, the end is near so that he could cry out in a loud voice at the end and say it is finished mm. without having to posit a supernatural explanation. It'd be hard to speak from the cross without any breath, right? Well, that's another thing. Uh, it says in the Gospels, he cried out in a loud voice. If you're suffocating to death, you can't do that. Plus, there's other evidence to show those who believe in the asphyxiation theory say you have to push yourself and straighten yourself up on the cross for every breath. You'd have to do that a couple thousand times to be alive a day on the cross. And some people were alive several days on the cross. Mm. And when people have been in these experimental situations, they can't straighten themselves up even once. Well, Tom, as we're kind of winding up our time for this interview, we just have a few moments left. I, w I wanted to ask about the, the thieves crucified with Christ. Their legs were broken. Tell us about that. The breaking of uh, the legs was to kill him more rapidly, and the breaking of the legs was something that would result in a lot of blood loss, enough blood loss to cause death on its own. This was a standalone, huh, pun intended, punishment <laughs> given in the Roman Empire at the time. The only time it was ever combined with crucifixion that has been written about is in the Gospels. Okay, and last question before we go to our break. Blood and water flowed from the side of Christ. Where did the water come from? Well, this was just a separated serum from the blood that was in the pleural space as you would get the, the damage from the scourging. And then as you died, it would settle out so that the serum, the clear fluid would be on top, the bloody cells would be on the bottom. So when the uh, lance pierced the side, on top comes out the serum, and then from the heart, which was pierced, would have come the blood. It almost sounds like the crucifixion itself was the ultimate insult, but death was imminent from the days of torture, dehydration, blood loss, no food. Um, death was coming, the scourge victims often died, and yes. the cross was really more of the ultimate sort of display uh, and insult than it was the actual cause of death. Yes. Does that seem reasonable? Yes. Tom, thank you so much for being on in this capacity. We're gonna go ahead and take our break and come back for the fourth quarter here on Dr. Doctor. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question. So, how much sweat can we sweat? Well, in an average day, the average person who is an adult sweats about one quart of fluid. Okay. One quart. But how much can a person sweat before the sweating shuts down to conserve fluid? Well, if you're not drinking, you can sweat uh, up to a gallon. Holy Three to 5% cow. of your body weight. And there's eight pounds a gallon. So, that's eight pounds of sweat. Uh, before the body says, hey, wait, we got to save fluid for something more important. Now, I'm reading about... Might think, we, I don't sweat unless I'm in Florida. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is even in cold climates, we sweat, correct? Yeah, it's insensible water loss, we call yeah. it, because we're not aware of it. But it's always coming off of our skin, especially if we're in a room with low humidity. I'm just thinking about the poor medical student who they tested that on. How much can you sweat <laughs> with nothing to drink? That's right. Hope that, that kid passed. That's terrible. <laughs> So our top three takeaways for this, gentlemen. Okay, my top takeaway, I'd say, is Tom, through your research, I'm just impressed at things I thought I knew and I didn't know correctly. I'd encourage people to look at the book to learn about that more. Yeah, my it, by the book, that's easy. That, that's got to be part of the takeaway. For me, in reading your book and in these discussions we've had, it's, it's just a new sense of the brutality of Christ's torture and death. Uh, he, he died on a cross, but he was tortured horribly for days before that. Um, and, and I think it's, it's hard to know that and appreciate that and not be moved by it. Yeah, the, the torture took place actually starting ooh, midnight. It was only, you know, they talk about the 18 hours from ending the Last Supper 
until he died at three the next day. But it probably felt like weeks to him. My main takeaway from all this is that if somebody asks you, listener, who are baptized, what your superpower is, it comes from your baptism. And that is you are baptized as a priest. And the role of a priest is to offer sacrifice on behalf of others. Your superpower is you can offer your suffering on behalf of somebody else's salvation. You can influence eternity. I mean, how how many times a day can we influence eternity? It's just unfathomable to me. And Tom, thank you so much again for being on. I think that is a beautiful way to bring it all together as to why the fixation on the details, because the suffering is important. If, if anything was the inflection point in all of history, it was the crucifixion of Christ. Oh, yes. I mean, he, he populated heaven. He allowed us to be able to, to end up there. I mean, the greatest love, you know, God dying for all of us required the, or us all going to heaven, required the greatest suffering, the death of God himself. And, and if we remember that he was both fully human and God, that means he would have suffered exactly the way one of us would have suffered from the same torture. Yes. Maybe even worse yes. because he understood it at a level that we wouldn't understand because we're not God. Um, that's got to have meaning. That's got to change one's perspective on the crucifixion. So people always wonder, you know, suffering. Why Why in the world does it exist? You know, there's there's a lot of postulations, but if not for any other reason— then to work for the salvation of souls, uniting your sufferings with Christ. Amen. Great way to end, Andrew. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to their, on their favorite podcast app. You can find this and all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And for those who want to dive deeper into some of our topics, check our website for bonus links and information in our posts from each episode. Just click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.